today on In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. Farag. And this is how you can tell the difference between condemnation and conviction. This is the litmus test, if I can call it that. This has served me well over the years in my walk with the Lord. I hope it will be an encouragement and even a discernment for you as well. How do you know the difference between condemnation and conviction? Condemnation will distance you from God. Conviction will draw you near to God. See, the devil condemns. Today, Pastor J.D. is answering a very important question. How can you know if it's Jesus or if it's the devil who's speaking to you? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And we know that it's the accuser of the brethren who speaks words of condemnation. Jesus lovingly convicts you and never condemns his bride. Now, be sure to stay with us after today's message to hear how you can get your own copy of today's broadcast. Subscribe to the In Spirit and Truth podcast or download the In Spirit and Truth iPhone or Android mobile app. But for now, here's Pastor J.D. in Isaiah chapter 5 with today's edition of In Spirit and Truth. God likens Judah to this beautiful vineyard that He has done everything and stopped at nothing for, to do everything that He possibly could for. And this vineyard slash Judah was so blessed, abundantly blessed, so much so that they forgot the Lord. You know how that is? It's cyclical, isn't it? Think this through with me. God blesses you. God prospers you exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond anything you could have ever imagined or thought of, let alone asked. And then you get kind of comfortable and lackadaisical, and you forget the Lord and you end up distancing yourself from the Lord. Because after all, things are going very good. And doesn't it show up in our prayer lives? You know how it is? When things are going good, your prayers are kind of like, Lord bless me, bless this, bless them, and amen. (laughs) But boy, let adversity strike. Oh God! Creator of the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that in them is. We put some reverb into it. (laughs) I mean, this is bad. This is really bad. Hey, by the way, have you ever thought of it this way, that maybe God knows that? That's the only time you're going to call upon Him, and He kind of misses hearing from you because you've been kind of blessed and off and busy and, you know, and I haven't heard from him for a while. I I really would like to hear from him. So it's kind of like parents, right? The only time your kids call is when they need something. So, you know, God's like, maybe I'll just have them need something. <laughs> I'll have, yeah. Have you ever thought of it like that? I have. I know they have clinical terms for this way of thinking, but 
if that's the only time I'm ever going to hear from them is when adversity strikes, well then I think there's probably adversity in their future, because then I'll hear from them. And it's cyclical. And I think we do err greatly when we come down too hard on Israel and God's people. I mean, it's pretty easy. I'm just as prone as the next guy. You go through the Old Testament and you read about the rebellion of God's people after they have been blessed so abundantly, and you're like, how could they do that? Oh, really? (laughs) We do that. And here's what happens. Here's that cyclical nature of it. God blesses us, and oh, praise the Lord, and we kind of get soft and flabby. I'm sorry to use that word for lack of a better one. Spiritually, you know, flabby and and uh, we kind of drift, because things are going really good. And then adversity strikes, and we're on our face before the Lord, and we repent, and God blesses us again, and then we forget the Lord again, and then God allows adversity again, and then we repent again, and then God blesses us again. You've seen this movie. It's the movie of our lives, our Christian lives. I think of um, Ecclesiastes 7.14 in our study through the book of Ecclesiastes, this particular chapter, that whole chapter, chapter 7, but in particular verse 14. Very interesting verse. Solomon writes, in the days of prosperity, enjoy it. (laughs) It's almost like he's saying, hey, during the good times, enjoy it while it lasts. As it's been said, you're either coming into a trial, having just come out of a trial, or right smack in the middle of a trial. Isn't that true? So, but there are those times when, you know, God is just blessing you, times of prosperity and blessing. But then he goes on to write, but, I don't like that word right out of the chute, (laughs) during times of prosperity and joy, but, When, not if, when adversity strikes and adversity strikes, stop and consider that God allows one as well as the other. Some translations render it that God brings prosperity alongside with adversity for this purpose, so that man will discover nothing about his future. Meaning, that man never gets to this place where they just take it for granted. Adversity could strike in an instant. And when it does, it keeps us dependent upon the Lord and the Lord alone. And oftentimes it has the much needed effect of returning us to the Lord. Those times in our lives where We just need to repent and draw near to the Lord. James says when we draw near to Him, He draws near to us. And sometimes it takes that adversity, especially during times of abundance. Times of abundance can be very dangerous, and we're about to see this in a very graphic way, actually, in this chapter. So why don't we jump in, verse 1. Now, let me sing to my well-beloved a song 
of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Wow. Right out of the chute here. Here's this vineyard, this fruitful vineyard that God has done everything and again stopped at nothing to bless and prosper in abundance. Even going as far as building a tower in its midst to protect it. Do you see here in these first three verses both provision and protection from the mighty hand of God? So now God wants to be blessed by and taste from the fruits of his vineyard that he's done everything for. So here's a cluster of grapes, fully expecting that they will be sweet and delicious, but instead they're wild. And you know what's interesting about this? Wild grapes, (laughs) they're not just sour, they're noxious. Not obnoxious, though (laughs) that can apply, I guess. Noxious. They are foul in their smell. And not only are they noxious, they're also poisonous, and as such dangerous. Now here's the picture. Here's Judah, this beautiful vineyard, and it has now become like these wild grapes. Have you ever thought about it, like that we as God's people can actually become dangerous? Instead of sweet fruit growing in our lives, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, we can actually instead become these wild grapes. Verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard, what more, verse 4, could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it, to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? This is of course a rhetorical question, as it were. Why, when I've done so much for you, I think about when the prophet Nathan confronts David in his sin of adultery and even murder of Uriah, his adultery with Bathsheba. And from what we can tell in First and Second Samuel, in the Chronicles, and then also in the Psalms, where we have some of the blanks filled in, is that it was about a year from the time that David had done this to the time that Nathan confronted him. 
And there's this one very interesting detail that's recorded in the Scriptures that God deemed necessary to have recorded. Nathan the prophet says to David from the Lord, the Lord wants to know why, basically. He has done so much for you. He has given everything to you. He would have given anything to you. Why? Why would you do this? Judah, I, I would have done anything. I, I've done everything for you. Why? Why? Now please never imagine for a moment that God is coming down on Judah with this harsh condemnation. It's more like this. It's a loving conviction. And this is how you can tell the difference between condemnation and conviction. This is the litmus test, if I can call it that. This has served me well over the years in my walk with the Lord. I hope it will be an encouragement and even a discernment for you as well. How do you know the difference between condemnation and conviction? Condemnation will distance you from God. Conviction will draw you near to God. See, the devil condemns. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, chapter 8, verse 1, said, There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. This is not a condemnation. This is, if you can see it like this, a plea to repent. It's a conviction. And let's not be too quick to just kind of blow off or sweep under the rug this word conviction as we often do. And I'll explain why I say it like that. It's a much needed conviction so that we'll take the rightful blame and not point the finger of blame to someone else or something else. That's the Adamic nature of man. I think about in the garden, <laughs> oh, it's humorous. You'll forgive me for seeing the humor in it, but here, very serious of course, but sin has now entered the world because Eve has partaken of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil. And so God now confronts Adam and Eve. And when he confronts Eve with the why question, I gave you all the trees of the garden, but of this one tree, why? I would have even done more <laughs> in this garden, in this vineyard, in your life, Christian. There's nothing I would have withheld from you. Why? Of this one tree, I forbid you to eat. So what does Eve do? Oh, she blames the serpent. Actually, you know what she's really doing? She's blaming God for putting the serpent in the garden. The serpent deceived me. It's not my fault. I'm not to blame. Actually, God, you're to blame for putting the serpent in the garden. Now, hey, before you guys get, you know, all excited about, yeah, that, those women, you know, they're, yeah, you know what Adam did, right? He blames even worse. <laughs> it's even more insidious 
and laughable again. And again, you'll forgive me for the humor, but he says, it's the woman you gave me. Not my fault. If you would have not given me that woman, this would have never happened. Wow. What is it about us that is quick to point the finger of blame on everyone and everything else except ourselves? That's what conviction is. True conviction is a godly sorrow that leads to a genuine repentance. And there's two kinds of sorrow, by the way. You know how it is, parents? When you catch your kids doing something wrong, oh, they're so sorry. No, they're not. They're sorry they got caught. That's why they're sorry. If they were really genuinely sorry, there would be repentance. Change. I think about, and I always use the illustration of traffic because that's a thing. I'm walking in victory. Actually, I'm driving in victory, I should say. But over the years, uh, that's an area where God has really worked in my life. Many years ago on the mainland, I'll never forget this. It's like I can remember it like it was yesterday. I pull out. I'm running late, as always, in a hurry. You know, and, and whenever you're in a hurry, it's like the car in front of you knows that you're in a hurry. Well, on this particular morning, you know, I hear, you know, I'm praising the Lord, you know, having a great devotional, getting the car, okay, running late, you know, getting the car, and my sanctification flees from me when a car pulls out in front of me. Yeah. You know what makes it really bad is when they have some Christian symbol on there. That's why I don't put Christian symbols on my car. This particular morning, this car cut me off with personalized plates. And it wasn't that far. I drive that road every single day. Never seen this car before. I would have remembered (laughs) because of the personalized plates, which had on them H8 W8. Hate to wait. Oh, you know it's bad when God has to speak to you through a personalized license plate on a car that cuts you off in traffic. Anyway, enough of my traffic woes. (laughs) But there's a conviction that leads to a repentance, a change. Otherwise, it's no conviction at all. It's just the sorrow of being caught. You get pulled over, I'm sorry officer. No you're not, you're sorry you got caught. If you were really sorry you would change your driving habits, you wouldn't drive so fast. That's true conviction. So here's how it works. Conviction leads to a godly sorrow, not the sorrow of being caught, the worldly sorrow, and that godly sorrow will in turn lead to a genuine repentance. What is God doing here in asking this why question? He's trying to bring His people to this place of conviction where they point the finger of blame upon themselves and themselves alone, rightfully so, so that that process of repentance from the godly sorrow can commence. That's why. That's why. It's not God 
coming down hard on them, rubbing their nose in. How could you? After all I did for you. No. It's, I want you to understand. It's not my fault. I did everything I could. It's your fault. You're to blame. And unless and until you can take ownership and responsibility for what you've done, there's nothing more I can do. You have to come to repentance. And that's the only way it comes. Verse 5, and now please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will, verse 6, lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, hang on to that, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard, verse 7, of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. There's quite a bit here, and I want to point out a number of things, starting with this hedge of protection, that God says, well, I'm going to remove it now. We often and affectionately refer to it, and even pray for it, pray a hedge of protection. Do you realize that God has a hedge of protection around your life? And how often do we dismiss it and take it for granted? I was talking with a brother the other day, and we were just kind of thinking about all of those times in our lives when God, unbeknownst to us, had protected us without us even knowing. I mean, how about the times that we know where you see the fingerprints of God's hand of protection, His hedge of protection around your life, and it's unmistakable. And you look back at it and you go, wow, Lord, that was close. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. That could have been so much worse. That's just the time that you do know. What about all those times when God in the realm of the Spirit protected you unbeknownst to you. I wonder if in heaven, I know this isn't, I know this is a stretch, but just indulge me. We're in heaven and and one of the angels comes over and says, hey, um, I want to take you into your theater in your mansion. And uh, we pop some popcorn. Oh, it's going to be, there's going to be popcorn in heaven, I'm pretty sure. But we just want to show you a video of all the times in your life on earth that God miraculously protected you, unbeknownst to you. I think mine would be like a series, like <laughs> like 10 seasons of <laughs> 15 per season. It would take a long time. Of course, no problem. We have all eternity. So where am I going with this? Well, To me, 
This speaks to our propensity to take God's hedge of protection for granted. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. If you think that the gospel is only in our first four books of the New Testament, you'll quickly learn through this book of Isaiah that the gospel is mentioned throughout. It must have been interesting for Isaiah to write the things he did in the course of his life. He was a prophet used by God who lived while several kings of Judah reigned. From their outright wicked behavior to a king like Hezekiah, Isaiah experienced the people living in rebellion and then turning toward God, realizing their need for him. God used Isaiah in a mighty way to influence these kings and to speak to them about what was yet to come. God can use you in the place you're at today as well. It may not seem as influential or powerful of a position, but God has you right where he wants you, to use you in the place you are. Are you involved in a local church? If not, we invite you to join us at Calvary Chapel Kaneohe. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 or 10.45 a.m. and Thursdays at 7 p.m. for Bible study with Pastor J.D. You can get directions at our website, calvarychapelkaneohe.com. While you're there, be sure to check out Pastor J.D.'s additional teachings as well as his Mideast Prophecy Updates, an accurate look at what the Bible has to say about this time in our world. That's all we have for today, but thanks for tuning in to spend this time with us. We hope you'll join Pastor J.D. for our next edition as we learn more valuable things from this interesting book of Isaiah right here on In Spirit and Truth. 